Hey, everyone. Welcome to Thinking Christians. It's James Spencer. I'm here with my co-editor of A Praying People, Dr. Ashish Varma. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the book and about the chapter, specifically the chapter that Ashish wrote in the book. So welcome, Ashish. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Ashish and I have worked together at uh, a previous institution, Moody Bible Institute, for a lot of years. Um, Ashish was a faculty member. I was part of the evil administration. And um, we worked together and, uh, and collaborated on this project after the fact, after I had uh, sort of moved on. And so uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, man. Um, introduce yourself a little bit. Talk, tell the people what you're doing uh, now, kind of what your background is. And let's just hear from you uh, from the horse's mouth, uh, what, who you are and what's got going on. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the introduction. And I'll say evil administration is pretty heavy handed. But now that you're not <laughs> part of that administration, the evil washes away right <laughs> that's right as soon as you leave it's gone <laughs> as soon as you leave it's gone uh, yeah uh, my background is it goes without saying but the bible has changed so many lives take a second and think about it if you didn't have access to a bible or were even allowed to have one this is a reality that many are facing that's why i want to tell you about one of our partners crew Crew has missionaries in almost every country and they are seeing people come to know jesus there's just one thing they're missing a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Um, in systematic theology, did my PhD at Wheaton College under Kevin Van Hooser, which was a great experience, if not a stressful experience, not because of him, <laughs> but that's just the process, as you know. Yep. <laughs> um, just, I, I love doing theology, have loved it probably since early grad school when I was a history master's student, and I had to take a course in theology, and I encountered Henri Blochet. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's theology? <laughs> and the way that he would just pull so many things together. Yeah. It was really what got me excited. And I, I think to this day, don't think I know to this day that that is what drove me in doing theology. I've loved the ability to be able to pull conversations together. Yeah. And that happens in teaching for me. It happens in writing, certainly in the piece that I wrote for a praying people. Uh, and in other work that I've done and have been doing. Uh, just just the exciting reality of being able to say, all these things are interconnected and don't have to be heavy-handed and say, but I get to control that, but to marvel at it. Yeah. is what really animates me. Well, and since you brought Henri Blochet up, I'll, I'll tell my Henri Blochet story because I went to Wheaton as well. 
And so I didn't do the history masters, but he taught in the exegesis program when I was there. And uh, there's this one moment in class where he's, he stands up and he's lecturing, he stands up and he starts writing and explaining these things in Latin. And so he's writing Latin words up on the, at that point, it was a chalkboard. He actually had a chalkboard. He's writing Latin up. And I lean over to the guy sitting next to me and I go, was I supposed to have Latin before I took this class? <laughs> and the guy, the, the other guy's like, nope. And I'm like, okay, so we have no idea what he's saying right now. And he's like, yep. <laughs> but Henri Blochet was one of my favorites. Um, and almost for exactly the reason you're saying, like he was just a, able to draw so many little strands together and, and totally. pull it into like sort of a cohesive whole. And the fact that he was just a really sweet old guy was was pretty awesome too. So so sweet, so sweet. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, and I want to, if I can, since we're here, I'll add on to your example of what he did with Latin. He would begin every class sight translating from Greek or Hebrew, <laughs> whatever the passage was he decided was most significant for the day, and giving textual commentary and off the top of his head telling you what other commentators say about the passage and evaluating them <laughs> before he'd give us a ten minute break. And then jump into issues of history or yeah. constructive theology or philosophy. <laughs> and I remember, you know, pulling things together again. You know, you mentioned the Latin. I remember writing a review for him on one of Jürgen Moltmann's book, a German theologian. Yeah. And he wrote me in his letter, his writing was tiny. Yeah. Like pull out yeah. a magnifying lens. He had a full page of comments at the back. He said, I I love this review. You did a good job. I think you're right. And then he started giving me all of these quotes from the German edition of Jürgen Moltmann's book. I read the English <laughs> that would further. He's like, you could have cited all these examples to further make your point. And I said, yeah, sure. Like, okay. Yes. I'm glad you agree. And I'm glad I yeah. think I was right. And then to add on to that, I remember I had a colleague in class who did his undergrad at Wheaton was a philosophy major as an undergrad. And if I dare say, was a little full of himself. And I remember one day he, I don't even know why, but he didn't love what Blochet was saying, but he would do it in a way that was like, look at me, look what I know. And he said, yeah. you know, according to Gautamer, he says, blah, 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 blah. And I don't even remember what the comment was, but I do remember right. Blochet's response, very gracious, just turns to me and says, Actually, on page such and such of Gautamer's Truth and Method, he says, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I went like this, and I turned to that guy, like, you better be sinking in your seat, because yeah. <laughs> you need to be quiet now. You need to stop talking. When the guy actually cites the page. <laughs> Off the top of his head, right. You're done. Just be done. Yep. Just be done. Exactly. So sitting in that man's glasses, I thought, I don't think I could ever do what he does. But if I could approximate that, that's awesome. And I love yeah. that ability to pull so many things together so richly. Very cool, man. Well, what yeah. are you doing right now? I mean, I, I know you've written this chapter and we'll get to that. But yeah. what are you doing right now? Um, tell us about some of the work you're doing, uh, especially for BART Center, right? Yeah, for Princeton Seminary's BART Center. Um, they've they've launched this new online magazine called God Here Now, which is named after one of Bart's books that's more accessible. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole point of it is to to showcase doing theology that's deliberately practical. Um, it doesn't come off as aloof, isn't devoid of technical conversations, but doesn't try to center those, um, tries to touch life, pull on anecdotes, those sorts of things. So 
um, I've wonderfully had the opportunity to be uh, one of the one of the I don't know what you would call it like a year-long fellow where I'll give them a piece every month for the next we were a month or so into it already but for the next 11 or so months now um, and it's been a fun process because I some of my former students work at the BART Center, um, have gone or are going, going to that seminary. And so they're my editorial staff of sorts. And they come back and say, we can hear you in the classroom, but you need to tone down the technical. And <laughs> you use this example halfway through, can we pull it to the beginning? And then I have to make my case for why I don't want, you know, those sorts of things. But it's it's been very fun. We're early on in the process. Um, just released a piece that's called, if I'm getting the title right, Resisting a Pure Theology, Theology in Proximity, where I'm drawing on uh, the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, mm -hmm. um, really influential fellow, probably more so after he passed, I think, when you yeah. say. I know yeah, he's I been would. influential to you as well. He has. Yeah. He's one of my, um, he's one of the sociologists I generally draw on. Yeah. And, and really, really good work. Not necessarily the most accessible, no. but powerful in what he's doing. And, it, and one yeah. of his key points was sort of in a desire to defend the importance of his work as a sociologist. Uh, missed the attacks of, well, you're too close. You're, you're allowing your biases to enter into your study, which is just a problem of sociologists, people would say. Yeah. His response was, you know, we have five senses. And too much of our lives are spent being taught that the most important ones are being able to see and being able to hear, which are certainly valuable, but they're, you do those from a distance, right? Yeah. I, I look down the road and I can see something or hear something, but I don't smell it. I don't feel it. I don't taste it. Right. And so his case is that it's really important to truly understand something, to have those, what he calls senses of proximity to smell or sorry. Yeah. To smell, to taste, to touch. Yeah. yeah. And so what I wanted to do in my first piece was to think about that in terms of theology, because uh, I think theology suffers from similar criticisms. If you get too close to something, well, you're allowing your experience to enter into it. But to me, I look on the other side and I see what greater theologian have we had than Jesus himself? And he yeah. picks up that seed, that little mustard seed. Yeah. And it's tiny if you've ever felt one. And he says, faith is like this mustard seed. And his ability to be able to draw directly upon what people know in their everyday life, right? Or look down the side of the hill and say, look at the gates of that city. The gates right. of Hades shall not prevail again. Like that, that's very experiential or doing theology, not just as, but in the midst of healing people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talking about sowers and weeds and oil and lamps, right? Right. He didn't see life from a distance as the way to to talk about God. And so... I don't want to dismiss the wonderful gains we've had from doing theology in these more abstract ways, but I wanted to say right. we shouldn't devalue the thought of doing theology from close by. And in fact, there are key questions that yeah, I can mean, animate it, us. Right. I, I think it was in his Theology of Revelation, Richard Bauckham talks about, no, maybe it was a different, it was a different book, um, but Richard Bauckham, New Testament theologian, he talks about, you know, we don't really experience God's omniscience in the abstract. We experience God's omniscience in the particular moments of our lives. For us, God's omnipresence, omnipresence, not omniscience, God's omnipresence 
is realized in the concrete moments of our lives. It's in discrete little packages. We don't experience it in its vastness. We experience it just in the moment. And I, I think that requires a proximity and a humility to say, look, yes, we understand that God is omnipresent. And as an abstract theological concept, it's really important to understand that. But in our day-to-day -day moments, we're not experiencing God in all of his vastness and all of his abstractness. We're, we're experiencing God in these concrete moments right now. And um, both are important. We can't dismiss one or the other. But ultimately, I think you're right. We have overcorrected to the abstract and to the expense, really, of the concrete and, uh, and have really, in theological methods, stepped away from thinking through how does my everyday experience actually inform the way I understand who God is? And does that hinder me in understanding God more faithfully? And does it help me understand God more faithfully? How does that all work? So I think it's great work you're doing, man. That's awesome. What's your yeah, next? Do you have your fun. next piece lined out or not? Um, so I'm, I'm overdue on the abstract for it, but I, <laughs> I do know what I want to do. I want to, in my mind, it's building. And obviously I can't presume that people have read the last one to then move on to the next one. Sure. So I have to negotiate how that works out. But yeah. in my mind, anyway, it's a building thing where I want to say, okay, not only is theology and proximity a good and powerful thing, but theology uh, belongs to story. So Jesus told stories when he was doing theology, but even the entirety of the revelation that we look to, the Bible given to us, yeah. is a story. It's a story with lots of different authors and lots of different movements and complexities, but it is fundamentally a movement from God creates to God recreates, and it's yeah. told in the manner of not just simply saying in some sort of staid stoic way well you know god made this and now i'm going to give you a lecture of 10 points as to what that means it's god god and the authors of scripture telling us a story about god creating yeah um there's a wonderful book by jonathan gottschall where he talks about how no matter how hard we try to resist it we are inherently creatures of story and he he, he loves to to look to kids right of it's not just that kids are these immature, naive beings who are dallying in the unimportant things. Because right. when you look at kids, you know, I have four little ones and every moment their wakeful lives is conjuring up stories. They're sitting at the dinner table and you have to try to get them to eat because mm -hmm. they're spending all of their time making up these live action scenarios where you know, it could be I'm Elsa and you're Anna and whoever the characters are of that 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 movie and they're enacting it, right? But it's not just them, you know, we dream every night. We're working out our lives and story in our dreams. If I'm assuming I'm not so unordinary, but I tend to zone out all day long in the middle of things and I'm thinking yeah. of stories, right? Or right. the reason that Netflix and Max and Prime are such such popular and lucrative venues is that we've that they the the movie making and tv show making industry has realized that uh if we just make continuous stories then people will be hooked in right this isn't macgyver from the 80s and early 90s where every episode's its own <laughs> thing this is game of thrones 
right? Where it's right. eight seasons of majestic storytelling. Yeah, yeah. And people binge watch it or any other story. Um, so I want to tap into that and say, this isn't just some outside observation. If this is our Bible and this is how we tick, then theology too should be very driven towards telling stories, but also we're interpreting story, we're telling stories. Yeah. Um, what might it look like then to think about theology's narrative? And then I want to work from that in future pieces to uh, not reimagine in the sense of reinvent a wheel, but reimagine uh, in terms of being able to speak in ways that seem to matter more to us. Yeah. You know, what might sovereignty mean as within a theology of narrative instead of as this sort of mechanical, logical sure. puzzle to be solved or providence? Yeah. yeah. So I think about someone like J.R.R. Tolkien, who I love and came into my essay in the book who he has this whole creation narrative that he wrote up for his Middle Earth called the Ainulindale. And in that, he's he's really laying out for you what you should be able to read through all the multivarious tales that he has through his mm -hmm. legendarium. And that's that no matter how bad things get, God's providence is at work. But that yeah. narrative sort of understanding, to me anyway, is more compelling than trying to play a logical game. So I want to lay those sorts of things out and work them out over the Very course cool. of the coming months. Well, I mean, since you brought up Tolkien and, um, you know, your essay is um, in the book, A Praying People is on Tolkien and how that relates to prayer. I mean, talk a little bit about like ease us into this. I'm sure most people are familiar with Tolkien if they're familiar with him through the Lord of the Rings series or, um, you know, if they were like sure. me, they had to read The Hobbit in high school or something like that. And then obviously the movies did a lot to to sort of help the familiarity of it. I was watching uh, I was watching a guy watch The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, on uh, on the airplane uh, recently. And so, um, you Still. know, these things have been made. Yeah, they they've been part of popular culture. They've been sort of pulled in that way. And uh, I actually think at least the first three movies did a pretty adequate job of of translating um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy into you know, more of a cinematic media. And so talk through it a little bit. You know, why is it that you decided to sort of um, bring Tolkien into a conversation about prayer? And how do you see him, you know, um, contributing to our understanding of prayer? Yeah, great question. I'd say first, I think Tolkien would have wanted that. I think Tolkien saw at least part of his work as interwoven with theology. So I, I think of a letter that he wrote to his publisher in the UK, where he's he's sort of defending the complexity of his story. This is when he wrote, when he was trying to get the Silmarillion published, which didn't ultimately happen until after he passed. He says, look, what I'm doing here is complex because I don't believe in allegory. Now, it's, that, that brings up its own conversation that Right, right for another time in another place. But exactly, he wasn't compelled yeah. by allegory. But he said, allegory is too neat and simple. You know, this image relates to what we know of as that thing over there, right? And you can do that with everything. So he was friends with C.S. Lewis, and they had that ongoing dispute. Lewis preferred allegory. Tolkien said no. But he said, that having been said, it's not as if what I'm doing here is fully fanciful in the most pejorative sense. Um, what I'm doing is, and he, this is his words, he says, inevitably fully washed through with my belief in the triune God. So he was a committed Christian, 
believed in the Trinity, thought that the Trinity was significant for understanding reality. And while he never brings up even this direct notion of Trinity in his in his works, he thinks in his own editorial musings about what he's doing that it's inevitably present in what he's doing. Because okay. when I read that, this is a couple of decades ago now, I thought, wow, that's powerful. And you know, you could go into the what he he has a descriptive essay on this called On Fairy Stories, where he talks about how what we want to do here in writing this kind of literature, and he's sort of the creator of what we think of as modern fantasy literature. Yeah. Is to create a secondary world. But in creating that secondary world, and this gives you insight into that Trinity comment, is we're creating something that mirrors the world as we know it. Just mm. for a moment, if we forget that hobbits are strange. We're brought back to it when you describe and they're the fully grown hobbit is, I don't know, four foot nothing and has huge feet and hairy feet and doesn't wear shoes. Right. Um, so now you're not going to forget, okay, they're strange, but then you're drawn back into it again. Yeah. And you're meant to identify through it. And his hope is there's enough similarity where you think of them as just little people as we know them, but enough difference that you have to reflect upon them that now I can say something about the primary world, the world that God made, he says, through the mode of the secondary world, which is the world that he makes, the fantasy writer makes. And reading that, I thought, wow, this this is rich. So he's inviting us to interpret as an active enterprise. And in some yeah. ways, I remember the 20 year old, 20 years previous version of me, that gave me a deeper appreciation for scripture. Because with all the technical ways in which you can learn about languages and recreating sure. context, the most powerful thing to me was realizing oh, wow, he's right. All the things that he's doing here and the richness of his story really is an imitation of sorts of what we get in the very diverse reading of the Bible that we have through all these different books and authors. Yeah. One of the things that he likes to pull on that, that motivated me here was he creates a stark contrast between those that embrace being tied to the world in which they're created. And by world, I don't mean structures of authority, governments, civilizations as we know them. I mean, sure. simple seeming things, trees, right. the natural right, which is where world, I go in my book, of, in my essay. Right, the, yeah, right. the space they inhabit. Yeah. Yeah. And he contrasts that with, you know, a very mechanical feel. Mm -hmm. And and he explained, you know, some of this is a product of his time, right, where mechanical is especially geared to a man who lives, was in World War One, lives through the horrors of World War Two as well. Um. And is in the heart of it. He, he lives at the center of where those battles are, not entirely, but many or most of which are taking place. Well, a fascinating discussion on J.R. Tolkien and a praying people. Ashish Varma is our guest today on Thinking Christian with Dr. James Spencer. More about this and those parallel worlds that he was talking about. I'm Richard Beatty. You're listening to Thinking Christian on Life Audio. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. 
Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. One of the things that he likes to pull on that, that motivated me here was he creates a stark contrast between those that embrace being tied to the world in which they're created. And by world, I don't mean structures of authority, governments, civilizations as we know them. I mean sure. simple seeming things, trees. Right. The natural right? Which is where world I go in my book, of, in my essay. Right. The, yeah. Right. The space they inhabit. Yeah. Yeah. And he contrasts that with, you know, a very mechanical feel. And, and he exp- and, you know, some of this is a product of his time, right? Where mechanical is especially geared to a man who lives, was in World War I, lives through the horrors of World War II as well, um, and is in the heart of it. He, he lives at the center of where those battles are, not entirely, but many or most of which are taking place. Yeah. And so for him, machinery is very much tied to destruction. This destruction of peoples, destruction of heritages, homes, yeah. landscapes. Um, and so he's reflecting on the other end of that, of what might it mean to, to value these things. Um, and so he builds that in. So you have hobbits that live in holes in the ground. You have trees that are living entities, and they have themselves tree herders that look like trees and can disguise themselves. You have the guy who is sort of one of the facets of a Jesus-type character, King Aragorn, or the the man who will become King Aragorn, um, who he walks out and he says, find me, oh, I forgot the name of it, but it's it's common tongue name was Kingsfoil. And the reaction he gets is, oh, that's just a weed. What to other people was a weed was something he had a deep, intimate understanding of as someone who could track well, who knew the ground. And he said, I can use this to heal. He saw it as a medicine and an an herb, right? And all these things are littered throughout what Tolkien's doing in a way where she's trying to powerfully help us see that we are creatures in a theological sense who belong to the dust of the ground. Right. And if he can get us to think about that more fully, maybe that affects us from an ethical standpoint, maybe it affects us as well from the standpoint of reimagining what it means to encounter God. Sure. So as we encounter God, or at least believe we encounter God in the midst of climate controlled warehouses or stone cathedrals, you know, whatever one's tradition is, um, Moses encounters God in a bush that's burning, but not being consumed. Right. Or the people of Israel encounter God in these very naturally driven miracles meant to denounce the status of divinity in Pharaoh yeah. and to to pull up the, the status of divinity of their covenant God, Yahweh, 
or they encounter him in passing through waters that, you know, it's one miracle to have waters of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds um, be pulled back. It's another miracle for that land to not be mushy. You can walk through it. Right. And I think that must have been something they realized in that moment, right? As yeah. people that belong to that environment. And then they're, they have food raining down from heaven over 40 years. They have this light in the sky that's guiding them. Yeah. Um, so before you ever get to Jesus pulling up a mustard seed or using planting or farming metaphors to tell parables, um, it's it's just natural to who we are. We forget this sort of thing. And so that's the sort of thing that I would often tell my students that was kind of a wake-up call for me was I remember being in my first year of marriage and in our PhD program, we did an annual um, a, a Labor Day picnic. And it was kind of one of those nice moments to say, life is stressful in a PhD program, but here's a moment to relax. And students were there and all the advisors, supervisors were there. And it was Labor Day weekend, so it's always warm, right? And it was a nice sunny day. Well, my wife and I had just moved into a condo with an attached garage. And to that point in my life, I'd never had an attached garage. Actually, since then, I still haven't. But um, we had an attached garage at our family home growing up, but that was for my parents. My car was outside. So sure. I go outside and I have to deal with the, you know, they go off to work while I'm scraping ice off the window (laughs) sort of thing. So this was a wonderful moment of, I don't have to scrape ice off the windshield. Yeah. So you look out the window, Labor Day weekend, it's sunny. There's a little stream back behind the condos subdivision and there was ducks swimming in it. It looked beautiful. Yeah. We put on shorts and a t-shirt. We go to the car, we drive 15 minutes to this park and we get out of the car and we realize, oh no, it's cold. <laughs> and the funny thing <laughs> is like, how did we go that far and not know it's cold? That's kind of profound. And I remember my doctoral supervisor saying as much to me as he watched us chasing the shadow line as yeah. the afternoon waxed into the evening. Um, and he, and he, not ironically, he wasn't trying to ding us or anything. He just said, I guess that goes to show we really are abstracted from the land. And that that kind of awoken something in me alongside this growing understanding of what Tolkien was doing to say our theology should pay attention to this thing. Even the fact that we don't says something theologically about us, right? Yeah. Creatures made from the dust of the ground, creatures who breathe the air that come through these organic HEPA filters, trees. Right. um, And we're cut off from it all. And I'd, I'd say as a final observation, I know I'm getting verbose in this no you're good um and an observation that i think everyone's probably had at some point or another but when you're sick and you can't and and you're in the middle of the winter and you have the windows shut and you have trouble sleeping because your nose is stuffy and then you walk outside and all of a sudden it's all clear your nose your nostrils open up your sinuses open up and it's nice for a few minutes um and that's not an accident, right? It's 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 something about the quality of the air yeah. Yeah. that we're tied to that's cut off when we're in it. Look, I live in an air-conditioned and heated house, so I'm not saying right. go find no, a tent somewhere, but I'm saying yeah. all those sorts of things I thought, that's all important. And now when we think about prayer, does that importance all of a sudden for our being move away as we pray? Yeah. Well, arguably, no, it doesn't. So I wanted I wanted to use Tolkien. I wanted to use observations from um, 
philosopher Barfield, Owen Barfield, who talks about the use of language. I wanted to use use information from scientists who talk about these sorts of things, you know, that bloche kind of thing and pull people together yeah, to ultimately yeah. get at what my question was, which was, which was really going into it. I didn't have an answer. It was, does it make a difference to be creatures who belong within creation when we think about prayer? And by the end of not, but it wasn't as if I was writing it, not knowing what I was doing. Right. But by the end of really working through this and then beginning to write, I said, yeah, it does matter. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it strikes me as just, um, I mean, obviously I enjoyed your essay, but I, I think what also strikes me is, as you're talking about it now, you know, you think about the way the tabernacle was constructed, you think about the way the temple was constructed, you think about the gestures it made to the Garden of Eden, the different um, floral and vegetative imagery that was included in the tabernacle and the temple. Um, you know, you even think about Solomon's prayer about the temple when he's establishing the temple he's asking god to come in and be present in this temple uh knowing that it's almost sort of out of the norm that this isn't something in other words that is um you know oh god expects this right this is this is this was the pinnacle of all we were supposed to do it's almost as if he's sort of entreating god as if it's an uh, an accommodation right, to have this centralized temple structure. But ultimately, those temples were designed to remind Israel of the uh, garden that they'd abandoned. And and so I think your point about prayer, you know, and the connections between nature and uh, particularly we might even say instead of nature, God's creation specifically, as opposed to man's creation, which you know, to your point, I'm living in an air conditioned house too. And I hope I never have to not, um, <laughs> uh, I'm not good sweaty. Uh, but I, I will say, I mean, I, I think that there is something to our over dependence on, um, and over, uh, how would you say it? Almost a fetish with, right uh, our own technology and the way that it sheltered us and the way that it cares for us that disconnects us from what god is really trying to help us remember which is not our own creativity necessarily but the creation that he's given us yeah for sure um i think to your point on that that first of all that it's creation that we want to make speak here. Uh, Norman Wiersbe has that great book where he says moving from nature to creation, where that's the point he's really wanting to evaluate that it's not bad to say nature, but understand that we're caught up in to right. have a call back to earlier, a story when we say nature, yeah. as opposed to a story when we say creation. creation. When we say creation, we're speaking mm -hmm. of our having received something. Yeah. And so to be caught up in that, but to miss that point, I think is the real tragedy, right? Yeah. And I'm not about to, again, go live in a tent. <laughs> but maybe that says more about my own weakness right now. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> uh, that most people in the history of the world have lived in those kinds of environments. Right. Uh, but what can I still learn from it, right? Is it, it, it just the normalcy of life where we live here doesn't even provide the opportunity to go live in a tent anyway. That's right. But That's what right. can that mean for our everyday practices? Perhaps it's um, something as simple as when we pray, um, be breathing the fresh air as we pray. 
you know, and it doesn't mean every moment of prayer has to be that. Don't, you know, we can't pray yet, kids. We have to go outside first. Right. Um, that's, there's a, there's an obvious absurdity to that. But the more, the more meaningful statement might be to say, um, I used to commute to the train and the most, I don't mean productive in some sort of economic way, but the most meaningful prayer or productive times I had were while walking and you're praying and, you know, right now it's the autumn. So you see, as you walk to the train, these beautiful red trees. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think while praying, this must be something like what Moses felt when he saw that burning bush. Yeah. You know, or I've always loved gazing at the sky and right at some times of the year while walking to the train, it's early enough. The sun hasn't fully risen and you see the morning star Venus. And this yeah. could, this could tie us into Tolkien, by the way, who did a wonderful job of trying to remind us that seeing Venus matters. So he tells this whole tale called the fall of Gondolin that culminates in um, this character named Merendel who rides um, to the angelic beings of the world for their help. And they give the help, but they say, you also can't return. Now that you've seen us and experienced us, yeah. you must be pulled out of the world. And so what they do is they place him in the sky, and he's now um, a bright, shining, looks like a star, riding through the sky, moving throughout the year. And the way that he describes it, the reader who's attuned with the sky as a as a map of things um, hears that and realizes, oh, this light of Arendel in the sky is his mythic way of describing Venus. Yeah. And now when you look at Venus, and this has been very helpful to me, you're no longer just seeing that beautiful bright spot in the sky that happens to be a planet that I know is one ring closer to the sun than us. It's also, it infuses reality with meaning where now you say, oh, it's a sign of hope. So just as the light of Arendel was a sign of hope within the story, now when I look at Venus, I'm immediately hopefully taken and I, I am in fact taken to saying, oh, wow, God did that. Yeah. And in the words of Samwise Gamgee to Frodo, you know, there's there's a symbol out there that shows us that outside of the structures of the world that may be overbearing, there's a light that can't be clouded. And that's yeah. that's that's God coming from the outside and in, and entering into our presence. Right. And that's how can that enter into my prayer? Well, it, my prayer in those moments was so rich because um you're in the middle of, of spilling out your, your, you know, your, your list of wants, please Lord yeah. do this, please. Lord. And all of a sudden you stop and say, wow, God, that's incredibly brilliant. Thank you that this isn't just some yeah. abstract distant nature. This is your work infused with hope. Yeah. You know, I was just on the, uh, I was on the men's Alliance podcast here not too long ago. I don't think it's actually aired yet, but um the host of that program whose nickname was goose um he he and i talked a little bit about this like getting out into nature and i talked about you know kim and i have started taking walks in the mornings and you know it's still dark out where i'm at and so you can look up and see the stars and the moon and it's still out like it's like you're walking it before twilight and uh i just said you know it's it's been nice to get outside I work from home. I don't really commute that much. Even when I do commute, I'm just kind of taking the kids one place to another and you're still in a car. Right. And so that walk in the morning has just been real refreshing. And he made the comment. He said, 
Yeah, it's funny how most of our problems are actually indoor problems. And I was like, dude, I love that. I love that idea of, you know, yeah, most of our problems are indoor problems. And when we get outside, a lot of those indoor problems start to feel smaller. Um, and I think that it connects with what you're saying. Um, you know, when you get out into creation, you get outside the four walls that we normally sit within, you get outside of, you know, um, the air conditioned rooms and the heated rooms and uh, all the technology, and you actually stop filtering God's world through a cell phone or a camera or whatever, right? And you're actually seeing it in all its vividness and all its reality. You're, you're seeing it, you're feeling it, you're, you're smelling it, you're hearing it all the senses engaged, um, it does make a difference. It really and truly does make a difference. And so I, I think, you know, your essay drives home the point that it also makes a difference for prayer. And so if we're praying, if we, all we do is pray inside, it's not like that's a bad thing, right? <laughs> praying anywhere is probably okay. Uh, but there is also something that would release our imaginations and help us to recognize all that God has created when we do it actually in the world that God has given us, as opposed to in the homes we've constructed or in the churches we've constructed or what have you. Is that kind of my summarizing kind of where you're yeah, at? Yeah, that's, that's great. And what I, I guess what I'd want to emphasize too within that is that um, it shows a level of interconnectivity yeah. and that you know, what I wanted to emphasize towards the end of the essay is that when I pray for food, that's a good thing. But when I pray for food, I'm also presuming a structure for how that food gets to me that may not be so good for that person over there, right? The person who works the banana plantation or the pineapple sure. plantation. Um, it may not be good for the earth. You know, you think about... Uh, I was we were we have this tradition of Saturday morning documentary and we were watching this piece, the kids and us this this weekend where it was talking about the ancient land of Kush that's now fully desert but we have plenty of good both textual and um, archaeological reasons to accept that it was not always desert. It's a desert, yeah. Yeah, and we have pretty good mechanisms for being able to decipher how we got from A to B right to lush land that was the center of an empire to a desert and one of it's simple really one of them was that their way of life was predicated upon knocking down all their trees yeah well speaking of pulling things in for theology right these these trees this tree that god put in the center of the garden surrounded with a whole bunch of other trees that richard bockham who you mentioned earlier says maybe i think the garden was actually a forest yeah um they they're they're temperature controllers they prevent roots from dying in the winter because of their cover and the leaves cover that falls to the ground they create cooler temperatures when it's hot it keeps it warmer when it's cold um it, it creates breezes that allow yeah. um, fresh air to move in and out it creates an environment in which you know the, the water that evaporates from the oceans and forms clouds is all emptied of its content within 400 miles of the coast well here in the chicago area where i live it's in in the area where you live that's about what yeah 1200 miles from the coast yeah how do we get rain will we get rain actually from the the vast majority of our rain comes from evaporation of water from trees mm. so just as quick observations there yeah 
realizing that this kind of lifestyle that meant wiping out all the trees in their area also radically changed their environment, put them in the midst of a desert, and that that changes the ability of an empire to thrive, right? Yeah. Um, now the politics of empire are what they are, and that's not what I'm getting at here, but just that it's yeah. fascinating to be able to notice those sorts of things and realize that affects life, um, that affects other people. So the decisions that a few might make to do whatever affect a whole bunch of other people who are the ones who are doing the labor, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to, I wanted to at least make nods at those sorts of realities that when we pray, we're not really praying in this isolated way. Even if our communication is direct to God, we're not in an, we're not isolated nodes, right? Like computers on an internet right. network. Right. No, I think it's a really good point. I mean, as, as, as believers, we believe that we are a part of a nexus between God creation and the rest of humanity. And that that, you know, sort of forms this interesting triangle in which we exist. And so we're never isolated in the sense that we can make a decision that isn't also probably having some sort of implication for, you know, our relationship with God and our relationship with creation. And um, it's just really important for us to identify that. So, yeah, I mean, I, bro, I mean, I love the essay. Um, I, I, uh, Tolkien, I, I think I learned more about Tolkien reading it than uh, than I did reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all that other kind of stuff. So I really appreciate that aspect that you bring to it. And um, hey, I know we're coming in on the end of the end of the time here, but any any final words you want to kind of give people um, some some thought that you have lingering with regard to prayer um, to leave with the listeners? Yeah, I'd say that I think I'm, I can speak for everyone who contributed this volume insofar as saying it, one of the most interesting things about writing this was saying in fact one person who I reached out to to contribute ultimately said no he said I don't know that I'm the right person to write about prayer because I'm still trying to figure out what it is I think we're all trying to figure out yeah what it is right it's one thing to be able to say I've I think this is a valuable insight to this angle and yet when we're in the midst of needing prayer um I find myself frequently just stopping in the middle of prayer, especially of late, and just saying, Lord, I don't even know what it is I'm praying. But you know, you know what I'm trying to say and what I need and what's going on. Um, so but for whatever the words are worth, help is all I can say. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in the moment, it feels a little sheepish to be able to admit that, even if it's just a prayer by oneself, but I, I don't think that anyone who wrote for this volume would say otherwise, right? I think we've all had those sorts of things. So I don't, I don't hope that this is received as um, essays on prayer from the experts in prayer. I hope it's received as the essays on prayer from those who are wrestling with it because we really ourselves are yeah. trying to grasp this wonderful, beautiful thing of talking to God. I know I definitely would not say I'm an expert on prayer. And I think part of what motivated me to write for the book and, and to edit it with you was just that I really felt like I it's an area where I want to grow. And so the best way that I know how to grow is to study and think and and, you know, just try through trial and error and grow that way. And so, yeah, I think I think everybody who contributed would echo that. And for the folks who are listening, all I would say is, 
don't feel bad if you don't quite understand how to pray. I don't know that there are a lot of people who have mastered that. And uh, if you're one of those folks who just feels like um, at home in prayer, kudos to you. Uh, help the rest of us because <laughs> it is definitely a foreign language to me in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I definitely echo that sentiment. Well, thanks, Ashish, for being on. Thanks for talking through this. And, and just thanks for your work uh, editing a volume and writing the essay you did. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll post in the show notes some ways that um, if if you want to read Ashish's essays in uh, the BART Center uh, magazine, we'll get those posted in the show notes. And um, I'd encourage you all to check it out because it sounds really cool. I'm going to I'm going to go out and check it out as well. And uh, outside of that, we will see you next time. Again, Ashish, thanks for being on. And um, we'll catch up with you all later. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the Thinking Christian Podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Life Audio. Need more of God's power in your life? I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical tips on how to grow your faith through prayer. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.